This is CHUO 89.1 FM. Welcome to this week's episode of The Mosaic. Here we'll be looking back on some of the greatest segments the show has seen so far. Today, a ranging conversation on the state of OC Transpo. We look back at a Parliament Hill protest to search the landfills. We'll revisit a conversation about the rise of Hindu nationalism in India. We'll wrap up by listening back on Hosier's performance at City Folk this year and Chamberfest plans moving into their concert series. I'm Lauren Rolston, and we've got all that coming up on The Mosaic. Have you ever woken up, rushed to get ready, and ran to the bus stop just to wait for a delayed bus to the O-Train? Then, when you get there, you find out the O-Train is closed for maintenance. This is a pretty common experience for OC transport riders, and the agency is projecting an over $40 million deficit for this year. They're also trying to regain ridership and trust, because even after three years, ridership is only 70% of what it was before COVID. Uh, my name is Wilson Lowe. I'm the city councillor for Ward 24 Barhaven East here in Ottawa. I also sit on the transit commission, but for city council, I started out as a, an OC transit bus operator. Councillor Lowe drove buses for around seven years before becoming an OC Transport Communications Officer. Last week, OC Transport launched its Tap and Ride initiatives for all buses and LRT stations. So uh, Tap and Go is uh, somewhat an expansion of the Presto program, and it kind of allows customers to pay for the bus with their credit cards on board all the buses. This gives riders the option of using their credit card, where previously you could only pay with one online. So this expands the uh, payment options available to both residents and tourists who want to use our public transit system, who don't necessarily carry cash or have a Presto, and it uh, makes transit a little, a little more accessible. Part of this initiative involves a fare capping system. What this does is basically stops charging you for a day if you reach the price of a day pass or for the month if you reach the monthly pass price. Equity-seeking groups have been calling for this fare capping for absolutely years, so that's really exciting. It's also exciting that you can use your credit card because it's good for tourists, it's good for intermittent users. The whole relying on Prestos was always a, a bit of a challenge, so we're pleased with that. That was transit advocate Carrie Elliott speaking. Well, my name is Carrie Glines Elliott. I'm a public servant in Ottawa, but uh, I'm also the co-founder and one of the board members of the Ottawa Transit Riders, which is an advocacy group in Ottawa that tries to be the voice of transit riders. We try to listen to what people are saying and then present the arguments to city council and advocate for better transit based on what actual riders want. These initiatives come as the city attempts to cover the major deficit within OC Transport. The biggest background to this is the fact that OC Transpo started the year with a $39 million deficit. Uh, and that's kind of the result of three years of not adapting our service to, to these new travel patterns. And that's kind of where we ended up now. And, you know, we can't keep cutting service and we can't keep raising fares to try to cover that deficit because at some point we're going to lose all of our customers. Elliot expands on how OC Transpo got into this situation in the first place. Well, sadly, we've had austerity budgets for years and OC Transport has been cut, 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 cut. And we used to say before the LRT came in that all the focus on the LRT was cannibalizing the bus routes in order to serve the LRT. And it was hoped that when the LRT was running that it would solve some of our problems. And because the LRT has been such a problem, it's just compounded the problem. So we already had problems with the bus routes. Now we can't rely on our train either. When it comes to potential funding aid, hearing back from the government can be a very time-consuming process. Yeah, I guess technically you can call it a waiting game. Anytime we need to ask for funding from any level of government, it really is a waiting game. 
Lowe says OC Transpo's track record since the pandemic warrants the province's hesitation with funding. Yes, we're waiting, and and of of course I'm gonna hope for some funding. But at the same time, like if we're taking some accountability and responsibility for this, we're, we sort of dug ourselves into this hole. Low also points to some issues out of the transit commission's control, though issues like bus driver shortages or aging vehicles that need replacement are all operational costs that the government won't be funding, according to Elliot. The province and the feds, they like to cut ribbons. Politicians like to cut ribbons. So they're happy to pay for capital costs in that they would like to give you money for like phase two or phase three of the LRT, but they're not keen on giving money for operational costs. And that's the big ticket item Mm. that the municipality struggles with. The city of Ottawa has to pay the operational costs. Councillor Lowe says with the leadership of Rene Amokar, they're pulling themselves out of the hole that they're currently in. According to the councillor, OC Transpo's current management is much more open than it previously was. Elliot points to Mayor Sutcliffe's promises on taxes as a point of pain for the city's transit. Basically what happens is it's not allowed for municipalities to run a deficit. You have to balance the budget. There's provincial legislation that requires that. We have a new rookie mayor who more or less told people that he was going to hold the line regarding tax increases. And so he convinced a lot of city councillors to vote for a budget that had a hole in it. It had a $39 million hole. And I don't know what he told people in private, but he sort of seemed to imply that he was expecting some money to come from upper levels of government. And that didn't happen. So the provincial government didn't give them money. The federal government didn't give them money. Their estimates for ridership were laughable. I mean, just absolutely ridiculous and didn't happen. So it seems to me that it was a bit of a fantasy budget and I'm annoyed that city councils voted for it. We need to be grown-ups. We need to be adults and we need to know that costs are going up and the budget has to be realistic moving forward. The Transit Commission is meeting today to present OC Transpo updates on rail, bus, and paratranspo. They'll also be discussing the capital budget and initiatives like on-demand transit service. The families of Morgan Harris and Mercedes Miran joined supporters for an International Day of Action to search the landfills on Monday. Protests took place in at least 17 cities across the country, including Ottawa. A crowd gathered in front of Parliament to urge governments to search the landfill and bring the women home. Earlier on, the families met with Crown Indigenous Relations Minister Gary Anadasangri. You know, we did have a meeting with the minister today, and it was very disappointing. Yeah, it, it was very disappointing. We've been sitting in rooms with municipal governments, provincial governments, federal government. We've sat at the table for months, continually telling them, what is it that we need? We need to bring these women home. Families are continually having to tell them their thoughts, their feelings, their needs. They're re-traumatizing the families, and that's what really made me angry today. And. I was actually ready to just sit and stay and camp out in that office today. That's Hidi Cook. She's the chief of Mispawistic Cree Nation and also co-chair of the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs Women's Council. She spoke at the demonstration on Monday, carrying the message that no matter what, these women will be found. I feel very confident that we are going to bring these women home. I feel it. 
I feel it in my heart, I feel it in my spirit, I know he will. And so we're going to continue on carrying that message. We are going to search the landfill with or without government. And when we do make that call out for everyone to come to the landfill, I hope to see all of you there. Miigwech. Thank you. Forensic experts conducted an indigenous-led feasibility study on a search of the landfill. They confirmed the safety risk can be mitigated. Yet the women remain missing in the landfills as their families seek closure and justice. Kathai Merrick is Grand Chief for the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs. Here's what she said, demonstration about the government's inaction towards the women. And this is, this is what happened in Manitoba, where a serial killer killed our women, and our women ended up in landfills. And that should not be. That is not acceptable. Only garbage ends up in landfills, not bodies of our loved ones. As previous speakers, we need to bring them home. We need to do the right ceremonies for them so they can carry on their journey. As for now, current governments haven't committed to any kind of funding. The Day of Action brought groups and individuals together to continue to advocate for change. We are going to hold them accountable. One way or another, we're going to hold them accountable. And that's why we need everyone to come together. For CHUO, I am Ana Sofia de la Parra. And then with the anti-imperialist group, you spoke at this demonstration on Sunday and you were standing on this platform and giving a speech and um, for people who weren't able to make it, what did Sunday look like for you? So Sunday, a bunch of us gathered, not only people in Ottawa, but also solidarity groups, South Asian-led groups from Toronto, Montreal, and other cities who were able to make it. So we gathered at the Human Rights Monument, and we marched to Parliament Hill, and then we stopped at the Prime Minister's office, and then we walked back. And the reason for this gathering was to denounce the rise of Hindutva fascism in India, and also the rise of these groups in Canada. And I thought it was an excellent event because it is much needed and we were these are urgent calls for action so we had speakers from different community groups so we had a speaker from the south asian dalit and adivasi network um, we had people from the national council of, of canadian muslims and uh, different community groups who had gathered together and workers and organizers so it was really an exciting event because it's i think it's one of those few occasions that a lot of different solidarity groups have come together to denounce the rise of fascism in india yeah and we had a little political and one of the purposes for this gathering was to not only educating the masses in Ottawa and elsewhere, but also to ask the Prime Minister of Canada and also the government of Canada to take strong action against the rise of this far-right extremism in India. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about the actions to address that. But before that, I would like to ask, you know, if you could just tell me about Hindutva. Sure, yeah. So... Hindutva could, like, I think roughly be translated as Hindu supremacy. And it is an ideology that is uh, propagated and accepted and by the RSS, which is a paramilitary right-wing force, which is also the ideological leadership of the current government of India. 
So RSS stands for Rashtra Swayam Sevak Sangh and it's been in existence for many many years the BJP the current political party did not just come into existence out of nowhere it has always it's, it's been around for a while and they believe that India and the Indian subcontinent should be a Hindu majority state so a Hindu state and that is led by the Hindutva ideology so what does that look like if you want to have a Hindu majority state it comes at the cost of suppressing other religions and minorities in the region so that includes muslims dalits adivasis christians sikhs and other religious minorities that in a historical context have always existed and coexisted in India and of course there's always been inter-religious tensions and communal violence and cruelty towards each other especially under the British rule uh, because it was a very systematic policy of the British to divide and rule at the time however what this current government has unleashed is unprecedented it has structured this under the Hindutva ideology that they propagate through extreme violence they're very organized they have cadre based mass organizations not only in India but now also uh, propping up other in other places in the world. Mm. And you touched on it briefly, but who are the primary targets of this Hindu supremacy? So yeah, like I mentioned, I think if you want Hindu supremacy, it comes at the cost of suppressing other religious minorities. Hindutva ideology also, at its very core, oppresses women and is extremely misogynistic and patriarchal. So in in a way, it concentrates power in the hands of the few, and that looks like upper caste men in power, whereas everybody else in the country is sort of second class citizens. So naturally, in according to them, shifts to a second class status. And what what does that look like? So, for example, bringing in laws that discriminates against Muslims. They tried to bring in a law which specific, which was very fundamentally discriminatory. They wanted to convert the citizenship on the basis of religion, where Muslims and non-Muslims were very categorically separated. So, you basically anybody who's not a Hindu would have had to prove that why they should be citizens of India, and any immigration from other countries would be under question. So, basically, questioning the, even the existence of Muslims in India. And to put it into context, we have a about over 200 million muslims in india it's 10% of the world's muslim population it's a huge population that we're talking about in other ways we also live an ecosystem of fake news where anti muslim rhetoric is exchanged is sent on whatsapp groups a huge population a large population of india is dominated by this news cycle that is inciting violence against these different groups so that is has become a norm other ways that could look like is um, they have created uh, what they're calling the cow protective groups they're basically mob vigilantes which are defended and supported by the government this was one of the first things that they did when they came to power was create these cow vigilante and mob vigilante groups that started anyone who was accused or suspected of transferring cows for slaughter was lynched was publicly flogged or lynched or killed on the spot and these activities of extreme violence was supported by the government at the time which is also the current government so they started normalizing acts of extreme extreme violence against muslims under sikhs another religious minority group who were active in protesting against anti farmers laws which basically wanted to to simplify it privatize a lot of the selling of farm produce so because it was happening in the state of punjab and other places a lot of farmers who were sikhs were protesting against this for many many months it was a huge farmers protest so the government also started criminalizing and started propaganda against sikhs as well 
calling them Khalistanis. Any activism that happens in or any protest and opposition that happens in Canada is branded as Khalistani, which is a group that is asking for segregation. So they're all like put together in one big umbrella of, you know, people who are opposed to a Hindu state. I, I also meant to ask about these cow vigilante groups. How, what do we know about how they enforce this violence? Mm-hmm. So the two ways or actually multiple ways, not just two ways of implementing this kind of systemic violence. One is obviously above ground, the legal ways of doing this. So that can look like, first of all, banning beef. So one of the first thing they did was they prohibited consumption, selling of beef in the country. What that means, it kind of legitimizes a lot what follows, right? And so anybody who was accused or they first of all they can start convicting people under that law anyone they want to accuse or suppress so criminalization weaponizing law and legal tools is one of the key one of the main tools of oppression that this government has used from its day one so one of those things was this beef ban that kind of legitimizes a lot of the violence that is used the other ways of doing this are not strictly legal ways so for example creating a lot of like hurting religious sentiments which is also in a supposedly secular state such as ours and its freedom of religion and expression is a constitutionally protected right in India. So under that framework, hurting religious sentiments could also criminalize you, which it does. It does criminalize you. So they started using that as well. So for example, someone accused of stopping a Hindu religious right would then be put into jail or be criminalized. Um, so a lot of like mob activity, the targets of these became the minorities. Who, who are always portrayed as being contradictory to the Hindu sentiment. And often so it's very fake. So for example, you will see this a fake news image which would say 95% of rapists convicted in India are Muslims. That's simply not true. It is not based on anything, but it is being circulated. It is inciting violence. It is inciting as much hate as possible between the groups and trying to divide on religious grounds. One other example that I can think of is very also a very systemic way of oppression is something called love jihad, which is the accusations or this whole rhetoric is that Muslim men are luring Hindu women to convert them into Islam. So it's a very classic way of propagating Islamophobia, which is what they're doing is they are not only controlling women's bodies and women's lives and denying them agency as if women cannot decide for themselves who they marry or choose to live with, but also on the other hand, criminalizing Muslims and Muslim men especially. So that is also another systematic way. National investigative agencies, government institutions are deployed to investigate the phenomena of love jihad, which is a myth. And yet it is propagated by this current government. It's the government lawyers that are defending this concept in, in Supreme Court. It is now slowly becoming a part of our legal fabric. There was a law that was passed that any religious conversion by fraud or coercion could be criminalized. Now, as you can imagine, majority of these cases are against Muslim men. So that's kind of have unrolled the, the system of legal, plus also extra legal tools used to target minorities. Hmm. And you can see like in these legislations, in these inflammatory rhetorics, it's increasingly moving away from a secular state. Many speakers at the event on Sunday, they mentioned the word genocide. It was used a lot in chants as well. So I'm wondering, do you think that's the case? Is this a genocide? Um, so I want, I want to answer that carefully, but I also I want to preface that with one thing, which is before we acknowledge or recognize that or identify that as genocide, what's key to note here is the political actors and people who support or 
and this government itself so basically members of this particular the current ruling government of india they are calling for genocide there are speeches of members of parliament their speeches of political politicians in india who are calling for mass killings of muslims in in india or the rape of muslim women in india and all of this is happening with impunity in public sight right so there are these congregations that are happening where people are taking oaths to kill muslims if they hurt hindus which is happening in the context of any way creating a fear psychosis that muslims are hurting hindus in the first place which may may not be true which is not true so before we identify it we have to acknowledge the calls for genocide coming from this particular political body and in addition to that i would just like to clarify that for genocide you don't need to spill a single drop of blood the genocide can be cultural genocide can be ethnic uh for it's very similar to in the case of canada for example the years and years of extreme systemic violence against missing and murdered indigenous women has been declared a genocide and rightly so in and why it is an ongoing genocide because it is a systemic discrimination that happens over a period of time but very similarly even by those standards it is definitely in my opinion can be identified as genocide under the international law and the founder of the genocide watch and genocide watch has predicted many genocides of the world for example the genocide of rwanda have now very clearly stated that india has the signs and the processes in place for a genocide there have been international publications that have identified this as ethnic cleansing of muslims in india you can read the reports under for example human rights watch amnesty international many and even un special rapporteurs under the united nations treaty mechanisms or otherwise and under also the treaty reviewing bodies where india is a signatory to have very clearly stated that india at this moment is deploying its public institutions and its state led atrocities against and targeting muslims dalits and and women and girls in india so that is an undisputed fact will it is it identified as genocide i think we have enough evidence to call it so mhm And and what do we know about the state of the BJP? Does it look like this is something that's going to be amplified? Yes, I think because they have the control of a lot of the public institutions and in front of our eyes we are watching them erode like the public institutions are eroding in front of our eyes as we are speaking uh, that includes the independence of the judiciary that includes influencing election bodies that includes amending the constitutions and influencing laws that have given us rights so one of the examples is uh, one of the first things they did was they started using the law to suppress political activists or human rights lawyers and act and civil society organizations so that there is no opposition to this systemic abuse of law and in that context abuse of law making sure that they continue to stay in power using an ecosystem of fake news winning the sympathy of the majority population that is hindus by folding them into this very ultra nationalist project this nationalist pride of india um there is also a big project of the hindutva ideology is that you know this nationalistic it's always underpinned with that the hindus are under attack or india is under attack and so we must you know rise up in patriotism and support this ideology so a lot of that is happening looking at the situation in india i don't want to say that we cannot defeat fascism or we cannot defeat a political power like this we definitely can we've done it before with the british and we can do this again but at the same time 
they are here now and they have the control of the country in many key ways, which is they are the state. So it's a, it's a challenging role for us, but I think the opposition is building across the world, not just in India, that I think they can be removed from power. And it's happened before, they've been in power before, and we have electorally removed them. So I think it is definitely possible. Mm-hmm. And opposition is growing across the world, but I also wanted to ask you about the rise of Hindutva in Canada as well. Can you tell me more about that? Absolutely. And it's a very important point, which is one of the reasons why it's so important to build this movement within Canada and other countries as well. And especially in the context that Indians are one of the biggest immigrant population in this country. They're also growing. We had over 400,000 you know, permanent residents added to the country last year, and it will continue to grow. We contribute to the Canadian economy. We contribute to the Canadian working class. Uh, we are a huge part of the Canadian fabric which also comes with its challenges because a lot of times the diaspora population which have stayed here for many, many years can also participate in the fascist ideology and the right-wing ideology of the Indian state. So one part of this is the ruling party has these mass organizations which are all over the world. Now, what does that mean? It means organizations which could be registered as an NGO in Canada. It can be a charity organization. It can get its tax benefits. But what it can do, it can transfer funds and structurally support and have events and propaganda events in support of the current government. Also, there are bills like the Hindu-phobia bill saying things like any attack on Indians or any attack on the South Asian identity is against Hinduism. So Hindu-phobia. They often try to put that under that it's, it's racism or it's Hindu-phobia. So anything against India can, can be termed as Hindu-phobia, which is a myth. If we are critical of the current government, if we are critical of the government policies, it is not an act against Hinduism. It is an act against a right-wing Hindu extremism. So that distinction sometimes can be can be unclear. One of the ways that we saw this rise up and we saw this in practice was there was a motion introduced in the largest school board in Canada, the Toronto District School Board, asking to identify caste as a protected category or have a developing guidelines to add caste in their anti-discrimination school policies. So this motion was presented and there was a vote on it. A lot of community solidarity groups sent in letters in support of this motion because it is extremely important to protect our children from anti-caste bigotry or anti-caste discrimination within the schools. There was a letter which was submitted by groups, by so-called civil society organizations opposing this, calling this Hindu-phobia, calling this against Canadian principles and all sorts of things. It was signed by like hundreds of people. So that tells us that these groups are very organized and they are present. For context, like anti-caste discrimination is prohibited in Indian constitution. It is illegal, it is outlawed in India, you know, since our independence. But to bring that similar motion or bring that similar caste discrimination is illegal in Canada was opposed by so many Indians living here and so many organizations living here, which is what is very alarming. It's a very dangerous move. It is a very dangerous environment that we're living in. That's something as simple as that and as necessary as that can be opposed. And so at this moment, that motion was passed. We were successful. It was led by the South Asian Dalit and Adivasi network, which were also present at the protest yesterday and a lot of other progressive voices in Toronto. There is future in Canada, and I think one of their main demands is to add caste as a protective category under the Human Rights Code. And that movement is also building, because a lot of times when immigrants move to the country, they bring a lot of that hierarchy and on the basis of caste and class and religions along with them. And to dismantle them in Canada is also extremely important. Hmm. 
And what can we do? And why does it matter that something is done? There are many ways to answer that. I think one thing I would say, why does it matter? I'll, I'll take that first. Is it matters because we're talking about millions of people that will be affected and that are being affected by the violence, the brutality and the cruelty of the government of India right now. We are talking about over 200 million Muslim population in the country. We are talking about over 600 million women in the country which are under attack with entrenched misogyny in their ideological approaches and systems. We are talking about over 200 Dalits living in the country which are kept outside of the caste system and have had to face systemic discrimination for many, many years and they continue to do so. So we're talking about millions of people whose everyday lives are affected by these policies and the everyday by the Hindutva, the fascism that's unleashed in the country. So it's called the largest democracy in the world. It is the most populated country in the world. If it affects India, it affects the region, it affects the world, it affects the people who are, who are migrant, who are escaping from these conditions. And we are talking about not just how massive the problem is, if we cannot do anything as in an international movement against genocide or against ethnic cleansing of minorities in one part of the world, then there is nothing that is protecting us. If we are not protecting the people of India, we're not protecting the political prisoners, the people who are lawyers, people who are defending activists, human rights activists, the women and girls in India, the, the people living with disability in India, there is nothing that is protecting us when that kind of forces, which are developing in Canada and other parts of the world, there is fascism not just in India, there is oppression of the Palestinian people, people in Haiti, people in different African countries currently. Without any solidarity, uh, I think I'm just going to repeat myself, but if they, they came for them first, then it's, it's us next. I think we do need to protect each other and keep each other safe. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it signals genocide. It's not something that you can just stand by and watch happen. Um, Absolutely. Those were all the questions I had for you today. Did you have anything else that you wanted to add? I think like at the end of the day, I would say that I think focusing on very clear and concrete demands. So for example, A, asking the Canadian government to denounce and acknowledge the ethnic cleansing of Muslims in India, to denounce the rise of Hindutva fascist groups in Canada, and to acknowledge that any Islamophobia should be denounced and resisted against. But also, I think we want the Canadian government and the people of Canada to acknowledge that any critical or any criticism of the Indian government is not Hinduphobia. It is not against any religion. It is against the acts of violence which is propagated by some fascist and far-right elements of the country. One important thing is to protect the people who are coming to Canada from India escaping these conditions. So, for example, uh, migrant status for all. Giving permanent residency status to people who are coming to all migrants is extremely important to protect them, to not keep them in precarious jobs and conditions. I think that's, that's something we can do and also support international and support movement and people's movements in Canada that are building as very similar to the protests that we organize and I'm really hoping that in the future we can have more events like this where we can we can have more educationals where people in Canada, progressive voices in Canada can learn and learn how to support and stand in solidarity with the people of India. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for taking the time with me today. Thank you, Lauren, for perfect questions. I'm very excited to, you know, work more on this issue, especially locally in Ottawa, because it seems to be 
there's not a lot of international solidarity organizations or work that is ongoing denouncing what's happening in the rest of the world. And these are not isolated systems. It's not just that these organizations exist in Canada and they also exist in other parts of the world. So that it is a very much a very connected world. So the, the, uh, the oppressor is not in one country. And I think we need to acknowledge that and work together for that. An energetic crowd eagerly awaited the performer known as Hosier. The Irish solo artist opened with DeSelby One. The song comes from his most recent album, Unreal Unearth, released in August. DeSelby is a fictional philosopher from a book who Hosier has described as part genius, part lunatic. The story reflects on darkness as a freeing thing where everything is lost and the peace that comes with that. You take in the blackness this is reflected in a Gaelic section of the song. It expands on that darkness in the terms of a love song. Hosier expresses his passion for his Irish heritage in his songwriting and covers Ireland's history of oppression by the British. His music covers political themes of resistance, revolution, and decolonization. Before playing the song Nina Cried Power off his album Wasteland Baby, Hosier explained how he wrote and sang the original recording with civil rights activist Mavis Staples. The protest song also plays tribute to several other civil rights era activists, in particular Nina Simone, who the song is named for. The crowd kept up a consistently high energy throughout the show, and Hosier made sure to have plenty of spots for the crowd to show off their knowledge of his music. Hosier thanked the stage crew, the management, and his fellow performers profusely before finishing off with the song that shot him to fame in 2014. Amen. 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 
debut single, Take Me to Church, became an international hit, reaching the number one spot in 12 countries. The song captures a critique of anti-LGBTQ policy and homophobia. After they left the stage, the crowd was left mesmerized and wanting more. The performers obliged for a few final numbers, including Work Song. So it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for. Why don't you tell me a little bit about how Chamberfest went this year? Oh my goodness. I, you know, it's so interesting that you wanted a recap. It's been really successful this year. I feel like we've met so many challenges that every festival is facing getting audiences back after the plague (laughs) and having full houses again was just a thrill we had a number of sellouts including our most recent one with angela hewitt you got to imagine three pianos on the same stage three grand pianos plus other instruments we were so full we sold seats that have no line of sight to the stage because people wanted to hear it that passionate our fans and our patrons are just incredible and they came out in droves and we're really really grateful but we also had a lot of successful late night shows at la nouvelle scene and saw gallery and free daytime programming at the nac and the and city hall for kids and adults we had yoga with cello two saturdays in a row and it was just phenomenally gorgeous you know the night before you're like oh no it's raining it's gonna be disaster and then the sun comes out and it's perfect and everyone has a wonderful time We're really happy um, with the support of the community, but I would be remiss if I didn't remind people that we are heading into concert series season because we run year round and we've announced, we've just announced eight shows. So we have eight different chamber presentations again in our central venue, Carlton Dominion Chalmers Center. So our first one is Augustin Hadelik and Orion Weiss. They are playing Wednesday, October 11th. All our shows start at 7 p.m. It's nice. You can have an early night. Um, it's not super late, but Augustin Hadelik is a renowned violinist and he's accompanied by pianist Orion Weiss, who is also growing in his career. And 
It will just be a lovely mix of Beethoven and a couple of modern pieces. Um, of course, all the details are on our website, chamberfest.com. And then in November, we have Scott St. John, Rachel Mercer, who plays in the NAC, and Angela Park, and they are doing trios by Ravel, but also by Canadian composer Kevin Lau, who is moving to Ottawa this fall. So it'll be a little homecoming concert in a way, and they're releasing a new album which is named after one of Lau's compositions as the most beautiful name. It's Under a Veil of Stars. Wow. I know. I just <laughs> It just chokes you right up. So that's going to be lovely. And that's November 28th. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in December, we are having what we're building as a holiday extravaganza. We're calling it Lead in the Light because, of course, all the cultures have a light holiday that time of year. And we're thinking about the solstice and about how the nights are so long but the light is returning. And so it'll be a very optimistic program. It'll be a really warm celebration. And then we have a little hiatus for January. No one goes outside in January. Two shows in February. The first one is February 13th with Isabel Faust, Alexander Melnikov, and Jean-Guyen Quiras. They are a violin, piano, cello trio. And they're often billed as a European trio, but they have a secret Canadian in there. And that's Jean-Guyen Quiras. And he is a lovely cellist. Um, they're all brilliant players. And we're very excited to have them. And they're going to play some Brahms and some Beethoven. And I think the versatility they're playing is going to really blow people away. And then later in February, we have a young quartet making their North American debut. That is Le Consort. They are from France and they plumb the era of the Baroque. So they're not just playing the known repertoire. They're actually, even though they're very young, they're really into going through the archives and finding pieces that no one has heard for a very long time and unearthing them and bringing them to light. And I think it's going to be a really delightful program. They took Europe by storm. They've won a whole ton of prizes. And this is their first North American tour. And we're delighted to have them as part of it. And then um, in March, we have Hagen Quartet. And they are one of Europe's preeminent string quartets. Just an amazing group of siblings plus one. So Lucas Hagen, Veronica Hagen, Clemens Hagen, and then Rainer Schmidt. And they will be playing some wonderful repertoire. Also, there'll be a master class with Rainer Schmidt for people who are interested in studying violin. We often offer master classes either at U of O or somewhere else in the city, which gives younger players a chance to get up close and personal with someone who's at the top of their game. And it's it's a real opportunity uh, for younger musicians to get that kind of exposure and a chance to listen and learn. And that's a really important part of our programming. Yeah, much, much more than the festival itself, like a whole lot of talented artists in there too. That's That's true. We even have one more program, two more, one in April with Emma Nikolovska. She is a Macedonian Canadian mezzo-soprano who's been storming through Europe and is coming back. And she'll be playing with Charles-Richard Hamelin, who of course is very well known at U of O, and they will be doing some lovely duets. And then our final, final piece of the season is in May, May 10th, and that's Gabriela Montero and the Calador String Quartet. They're a Californian quartet. Montero, of course, is a very well-known Venezuelan expat, and she really took the world by storm with some of her original compositions. I think everyone in the, the classical world knows her for that but she's also really well known as an improviser and a very lyrical player and I think that's going to be really interesting. Of course, I'm just babbling on, but we also do community programming for the year. Um, and I don't know if everyone knows about that. So it's not just concerts for children. We do concerts in care. Those aren't even publicized. Those are for people in hospice or in need. We also have a program with children at Chio that we don't publicize where we go in and 
play music for people who who just need a little break from what they're going through. And in many ways, that is some of the most important programming we do. Yeah. But all our community programming, our city series, which is out in city venues, so not just City Hall, but other facilities, and our pub nights, which we call Chamber Pines, give us a chance to bring music to people where they're at. Of course, we're centered downtown a lot, but Ottawa is a sprawling city these days. We, uh, we're we trying to move into neighborhoods outside the core. We're trying to move outside that ring road of the green belt and program events, smaller events outside the core of the city so that people don't always have to leave their home neighborhood to go see either classical or other music that we feel falls under our programming base. We program a lot of stuff that's folk or folk adjacent or jazz because the true definition of chamber music is not just classical music. I, I would say it's one of each instrument. So earlier this year, we programmed a concert at Saw Gallery as a late night show with banjo and flamenco guitar and traditional tabla drums. And technically that's chamber music. It was just a while, oh, and violin, of course. Uh, that was William Lamoureux. And technically that's chamber music. And it was a wild night of music and people really enjoyed it. And we love getting out into the community and programming that kind of activity as well. Mm-hmm. And and what got you involved? What made you want to be a part of it? Chamberfest? Oh, Chamberfest is, um, it's not a machine, but it's a very large engine that keeps turning. We're coming up to our 30th birthday. I've only been with the festival since January. I come from the folk and jazz world, but the challenge of working with a festival this big, we've just done, we're on our 15th day of programming. That makes us longer than Blues Fest this year, which is some kind of Ottawa record, but we are one of the largest chamber festivals in North America. We have such extensive programming. So that that challenge is really exciting. And diving in and learning about all the kinds of music has been absolutely thrilling. Hmm. I was reading that it was the largest chamber festival in the world. Um, There's some debate, all those world records, you know, but um, I I would say we could accept that crown. And, and tell me, I'm kind of curious to, to people who have, you know, this is maybe new to them. What do you think brings in such a, such a large crowd? Um, I think it's the quality of the sound. The people who, as you know, working in radio, music fans of whatever stripe are passionate. They just love what they love and they want to hear it live. But because we have such good partnerships with our venues, the sound is always amazing. So when we're presenting a noon hour show, it's not just someone cracking something off. It's the same quality as one of our evening shows. It's in the same venue and the sound is outstanding. And we're, we take great care with that. And the level of performance is it's, it's world class and you don't get to hear that every day. But of course, we also lift up local performers who are working at that level. And and that's always a thrill. I think giving that platform to artists is is an important part of what we do that, that feeds the music ecosystem and gets them up to the next level. Yeah, and, and Chamberfest has been going on since 1994. So like you said, 30th birthday coming up next year. What can yes. people expect? Well, there will be, as well as our, you know, regular programming during the year, there'll be some some special programming leading up to the festival. I can't give you any hints about the artistic lineup for next year for the festival because, of course, nothing gets announced till contracts are finalized and we're in the negotiation stage. But I have been told there will be some very special elements that will be worthy of a 30th birthday. I think it's, it's going to be truly exciting. I'm really hoping, this is personally, one of the things we did this year that we haven't done before was we programmed a sight reading party where 
local musicians and musicians who are playing at the festival got together and it's like a jam. They played music from the sheet music together, worked it out, and it was truly delightful to see the experienced guiding the slightly less experienced. So they all sounded great together. And, and that kind of community of play is very common in the folk world and other kinds of communities. And it's nice to see it happen in the chamber world. So I'm really hoping we do that again because it was a really thrilling experience for all the players. Wow. Well, Sandy, we are going to be keeping our eye out. Thanks so much. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. And that's it for today's episode of Mosaic's Greatest Hits. Thanks so much for tuning in. You can listen to this episode and previous ones on chuo.fm. I'm Lauren Rolston, and we'll see you next week.